In 2016, Cambridge was named a social mobility cold spot, meaning it ranked in the lowest 20% of local authorities across the UK. This means that for a child from a disadvantaged background, the chances of doing well at school and getting a good job are very low. The impact of COVID-19 threatens to significantly widen the social mobility gap still further, with young people disproportionately affected by the pandemic. It is evident that something needs to be done to provide greater opportunities and support in order to address these inequalities, narrow the gap in attainment and improve outcomes for children from disadvantaged families. I'm Alison Taylor and this is Cambridge in Pursuit of Equality. Today, I'm joined by Nigel Howlett, Chief Executive of the CHS Group, which provides housing, care and community services in Cambridge, and Paula Bishop, Children and Young People's Services Manager at Cambridge City Council. Hello and welcome to you both. Thank you so much for joining us today. So turning to you, Nigel. CHS Group, it's been around for 100 odd years since the 1920s. Why was it originally founded? CHS was set up in 1927 and it was set up by uh, an interesting collection of people. So the Cambridge Council for Christian Witness was the group who was primarily involved in starting the idea. And CHS's founding included some of the first women in senior public positions in Cambridge. So the first woman councillor was one of our original shareholders. The first woman told a senior police position in Cambridge was one of the founder shareholders. And what they were trying to do was to acknowledge the shortfall in the initial funding for council house building that started after the First World War. So large-scale state funding for new council housing began then, but it quickly became clear that that was only for the posh end of the working class. You had to be in a well-paid working class job to be able to afford a council house. And CHS was set up to provide housing for people who were too poor to afford council housing. The CHS in the 1920s had an agreement with the city council that if you lived in one of our houses and you got a better job, the city council would rehouse you so that we could keep our houses for people who were poorer. And another way in which poverty was a key part of what CHS did then and still tries to take into account today is that in the 1920s, rents went down by sixpence a week, sixpence old money a week, for every child you had above four to try to make sure our homes were still affordable for people who had large families. So there was a real focus on helping the poorest people in Cambridge to get a decent home. Although a lot has changed over the last 100 years, it's not all been for the better. When people think of Cambridge, they think of a lovely, leafy university town, but actually there are some areas of real social deprivation. This is Leslie, a teacher of over 20 years and chair of trustees at the Cambridge-based charity, The Red Hen Project. Red Hen Project started by two head teachers in the north of Cambridge. So a couple of head teachers wanted to employ a homeschool worker whose job was to get children into school. So if there were social barriers to getting the kids into school, something dysfunctional happening in the family or, you know, a, a parent who was really sick or something, getting the kids into school so that their education could be kind of sacrosanct and maintained. And that's what we've done since. Over the last few years, our work has changed slightly. We're seeing much more poverty-related issues, really. Paula... Please tell me about the work of the Children and Young People's Services team 
Um, what's the team's remit and what was your focus prior to the pandemic? The City Council have had a very long history of providing services for children and young people, particularly focusing around play services. So CHIPS, Children and Young People's Participation Service, we are a discretionary service at the council. Our predominant focus is children of school age, so children that are independently able to access services. We offer a range of activities and events. We also manage a community centre in East Chesterton, so we have responsibility for Brownsfield, which is our, our operational base. And we provide, where possible, activities and events that are all free at the point of delivery. Some of them are universal and some of them are specifically targeted to those children in the greatest need. Fantastic. I've heard you talk about the community scrap store and the Big Wednesday events. Can you tell me a little bit more about these projects? Uh, Big Wednesday is a part of our summer programme. So in normal times, we have a long school holiday programme which covers the whole of the city. We encourage families to come along, parents and carers to join their children. And the Big Wednesdays are the focus of each of those weeks. So we would choose a destination park. So for example, in the city, uh, we might be looking at Jesus Green or Newnham, Lammers Land. And we invite other organisations to join us so that we can put on a free kind of mini festival, really. That's what a Big Wednesday would look like with lots of activities, lots of free activities and events. You mentioned Cambridge Community Scrap Store. The purpose of Scrap Store is for us to be able to distribute predominantly art and craft materials, but we get all sorts of things. We get donations from industry and businesses across the county, really. And the idea of Scrap Store is that we can then pass those resources on to other people we have a membership scheme, we have a base for Scrap Store. Most of the resources are aimed at projects for children and young people, but not exclusively. And over the last few months, Scrap Store has come into its own because we've had huge, huge amount of donated material, which in turn have been um, used to create scrubs and masks. Wonderful. Nigel, I'd like to understand a little more about the social housing situation and how many adults, including the elderly, are living in social housing or care. You told me that across the city of Cambridge, 19% of homes are social housing, both council and housing association housing. That's probably slightly more than that in population terms, a bit over 20%. In terms of care, it's tricky to be clear because definitions of, of care aren't always consistent. But probably about a further 2% of the dwellings in the city come with care provided as part of living in that dwelling. But obviously most people who receive care do so in their own homes rather than in a home that is tied to a care service provision. So those are the figures. And in terms of what life was like, a lot of people struggle on low incomes in Cambridge, which is a very high cost area and hence the disappointing record in terms of social mobility and inequality here. So in a city as affluent as Cambridge, can you please explain why we still need social housing? Well, Cambridge is famous for its high tech, biotech research um, and the country really needs Cambridge's cutting edge work in this area. But all of that work relies on a whole pile of people doing jobs that are relatively low paid because they're often undervalued by wider society to keep all of that going. People wouldn't be able to make the discoveries and stretch the boundaries in the way they can if there weren't people doing the cooking, administration, childcare, looking after their elderly relatives. Cambridge needs people doing jobs that are low valued by society and are therefore relatively poorly paid. And you cannot have a successful city like Cambridge unless there is room for 
everyone to do all the jobs that are needed to support that to live here. Having all those range of jobs and work also makes Cambridge an attractive place to live. It is an attractive place to live for a lot of people and it's part of the Red Hen Project's mission to help some less privileged members of the community to feel that as well. Here's Leslie again. So we want them to have birthday presents, we want them to have good nutrition and good food. And we've always done food bank referrals, we've always kept an emergency bank of stuff. But when Covid hit, the whole of the community scrabbled and did what they could and all sorts of amazing things happened. It's actually brought people together and now all sorts of agencies are working together. Because, was it the Salvation Army thing when they, about, you can't preach to a hungry man, well you can't teach a hungry child. So we were very keen to get food into homes so that people could not have to try and get to a supermarket with three kids in tow. It's great to hear about communities coming together to help each other out in this time of need. Nigel, what sort of impact has the pandemic had on social housing and the people who need it? I guess the key thing to say is that the pandemic has made worse the inequalities that we've just been talking about. It's exacerbated the income insecurity of people in low-paid work. People in low-paid work are also more susceptible to COVID because they're more likely to be in frontline jobs, seeing the public. The pressures on people in these sort of low-paid frontline services, clearly the pandemic has exacerbated those problems. And the risk is that it makes the social mobility restrictions worse in the future because people's income is worse and they've suffered from the, the effects of COVID more significantly. Mm. So, Paula, from your perspective then, thinking about young people, children and young people again, what have you seen in terms of the impact of the pandemic on low-income families in particular with, with children? I feel at the moment that we don't really know what the impact is going to be, but we have definitely seen the impact on some children where they felt quite isolated, quite scared. And I think as a society, we've started to address the fact that we're all going to have to deal with the consequences of the impact in terms of our mental health. But for children, identifying what that's really meant for them. So homeschooling was a great offer for a lot of them, but for some of them, it was the worst thing ever because they weren't having contact, not just with their teachers, but with their, their peers. We spoke with Julie Spence, the Lord Lieutenant of Cambridgeshire, about the state of mental health in children during COVID. Young people within the school system do want to have props around them to go and see and speak to them. By that I mean friends and teachers. So we need to do things for them within the environment. With studies showing increases in anxiety, loneliness, depression and suicidal thoughts since the beginning of the pandemic, the situation is very serious. Well, I mean, the one thing that everybody wants to stop is suicide. The Stop Suicide campaign is really, really important. It's about anybody, anywhere having the courage to actually ask somebody if they're okay. Please get involved and talk to young people or older people, actually, who you're just not sure how they're feeling at that particular moment in time because you could actually be their lifesaver. What are the other risks, Paula, that you are aware of for children or have been aware of during the pandemic? the isolation, mental health, but what other things potentially? There's a whole raft of kind of smaller issues, I think, which perhaps will become, you know, will become more apparent in time. But we have seen a huge increase in the numbers of families accessing the food bank and the food hubs, which we've been supporting. 
we definitely see a decrease in children's mobility, that we're not seeing children out and about on the streets. Um, when the restrictions were slightly relaxed during the summer, play parks were not as busy as we would have expected to see them. You know, there was a real sense of we shouldn't be out there, we shouldn't be playing with our friends, we can't touch the play equipment. One of the other things that we picked up quite early on as well was children's fear of seeing people wearing masks. They found that quite difficult to get their heads around. I mean, as adults, we did. So going to the doctors, anywhere that they were going where they were seeing other adults, they're not able to read those cues. You know, those visual cues that you get from people's body language. Much more difficult when an adult that's conversing with you is wearing a mask. And I suppose the other thing that we've worked quite hard at is trying to address and understand young people's sometimes perceived lack of compliance around the COVID restrictions and the mixed messages that they've received. So they don't understand it. It doesn't make very much sense. And the natural you know, inclination of children, young people is to be together. That's the whole thing of growing up is being with your friends and learning from your peers. And that time has been impacted quite significantly. So what's been the local authorities' response to that? What, what indeed can you do about that? So we've been doing some work, particularly with young people, to make sure that at least the, the core messages that we all know about that have been drummed into us for the last however many months around face, space and distance, that we're, we're repeating those. But we've also just been doing a piece of work with a theatre company. It, it's a film which has been scripted with a young person to tell the story of the pandemic, but also to tell it from the perspective of the young person. So actually, yeah, it has been hard. We haven't enjoyed it. It's been difficult. We've not been able to meet our mates. But the reason that we're doing this is because we, we have a responsibility for society. Fantastic. So, Nigel, turning to you again now, what areas of social care are of a particular concern in Cambridge now and moving forward? Well, the biggest concern around social care is the national concern that governments of all varieties for many years now have shelved coming up with a long-term sustainable vision, funding and strategy for how social care should be provided. This government keeps promising that it will bring forward a strategy and hopefully that might be one of the positive things that comes out of the pandemic, the recognition of the importance of social care and the difficulties when social care is not prioritised, as happened early on in the pandemic. That's a national problem, um, a long-term problem, and hopefully one that will now be resolved. I think the second thing to say about social care is that deprioritisation of social care at the start of the pandemic. So the lack of resources available in social care, the lack of PPE, the discharge of residents from hospital before testing was available. So all these problems protected the National Health Service, but it's caused real problems in social care. I'm not sure the government really understands social care. If you look at what happened during the pandemic, relatively low-paid social care workers were on the front line providing services to vulnerable elderly people, which we need them to do. In the early days of the lockdown, they didn't have support from the government. We didn't have proper supplies of PPE, for example, our supplier of PPE is also a supplier to the health service and their supplies to us just dried up. Um, we had to search alternative providers because the NHS was the top priority for their supplies. 
I can understand the government making that decision. That might even be a decision I'd have made if I was in the government's position. But it left us in a very difficult position. And Easter, I remember, was a really difficult time in terms of trying to make sure that our frontline staff had the proper protection they needed and the government said they should have. So low-paid staff were on the front line, putting themselves and their families at risk of catching the virus. And from their perspective, doctors, nurses and so on, stopped attending from a perspective, it looked if the, um, the better paid professional roles withdrew because of the risks to them, whereas relatively low paid care staff were left on the front line taking all the risk. And I can see why all of that happened. But if you think about putting your family at risk by taking the risk on continuing to work in, a, uh, in an environment where there is COVID and a number of care settings in Cambridge did have um, outbreaks of COVID in them, then you have to be pretty brave to do that. More recent government guidance during the second lockdown has been that care workers who have more than one job need to give all except one job up so people aren't working in more than one care setting. And I can see why that's logical in terms of disease transmission. But many care workers do work in more than one care setting because they need the income. These are not highly paid jobs and people need jobs to suit their circumstances. They need shifts and work that suit their personal circumstances. So it's fine to say that, but if there isn't financial support for people and recognition that they need that money, then it's not going to be a surprise if people aren't able to stick with that. And we obviously don't know, and we can ask people, but we don't know how many other jobs people might need. And if, if we're going to tell them to give them all up except one, then they're not going to be encouraged to tell us they have other jobs in care. These are examples where there's a lack of understanding about what care is actually like on the front line, and that feeds into a lack of policy focus on it. To me, really highlights one of the, the main points about Cambridge is that there is such a big divide between those who are on the front line in those lower paid jobs, as you describe, and many, many other people who outnumber them who are, are living in relative affluence, um, who don't even know those details of the way that those people's lives are. So we've talked about the sort of national picture. Nigel, if you were thinking about your vision for Cambridge now, moving through 2021 and into the future, what would be your vision for social care and affordable housing and all of the issues that you... Um, as a group deal with on a day-to-day basis? My vision would be that everyone should be able to have their needs met, whether it's in housing or social care, that they should have some choice about that because not everyone is the same and everyone deserves some choice so that things can reflect their own personal circumstances and particularly that those services should be affordable. Government policy on the meaning of affordable housing is that affordable housing is housing that is at less than market rent or market price. That is not a good definition of affordable. It's no good saying something is affordable because it's 5% less than a market rent. If your income is much lower than that, it's not affordable. So it's about having needs met, it's about having choice, and it's about those options being affordable to you in your current circumstances. So that would be my vision. And what do you think is needed for us to reach that vision? How can we get there? The government's plan, which is highly desirable to build 300,000 new homes a year across the whole country. So as a country, we haven't achieved that for decades. The committee explored how the government was going to achieve that. And what they discovered is that that as a target had been downgraded to an ambition because it's jolly difficult. So I think the first thing is you need to have a vision, 
and a strategy to deliver that vision and just saying that it's, it's something we'd like to happen, but we can't make it happen, isn't enough. So we need some proper thinking, resourcing and planning from the government around that. And I think one area in particular is relevant to Cambridge. Cambridge is a very high price area. And I think the key political strategic issue underlying all of this is the balance between the private gain from high land prices and the public good. So in a place like Cambridge, where land is very, very expensive, that makes housing very, very expensive because housing needs land. The balance of the benefit that accrues to people that own land in terms of their personal benefit, as opposed to the community benefits that come out of that, needs to be thought about because effectively, in somewhere like Cambridge, we need more community benefit, which means less personal benefit. So the example of that would be the proportion of new housing that should be affordable the cost of providing that affordable housing, which is on subsidised land, effectively needs to come from the landowner. They need to accept a lower price for the land in order that more of that land can be used for community assets, so affordable housing or education or health or whatever it is, whatever the local authority knows is needed, more of that needs to be delivered as a community benefit. At the moment, the system we have there's either not enough funding or not enough land to provide the range of community benefits that most communities feel they need. One of the big objections to new development nationally is the lack of these community resources, you know, the lack of investment in health or education or community development to support local communities. So we need to get that balance right and that will also require work from the government. Our local authorities in and around Cambridge, I think, are doing their absolute best within the system that they have to work within. You know, we have a lot of new affordable housing being provided um, in Cambridge. The City Council are doing as much as they absolutely can. So moving to you, Paula, we've acknowledged that obviously there's a huge amount of work going on and there are lots of constraints. If there were no constraints on resources and you could have your vision for children and young people in Cambridge, what would that vision be? It would start with hearing the voice of children and young people. So it'd be about involving them in the discussion and um, finding out from them, hearing from them uh, what it is that they need and want and listening to them, not just playing, uh, paying lip service to that. It would be about involving them in the conversation about what we do as we go forward and ensuring that one of the kind of messages that underpins all of that is about hope, that we may have been through some of the darkest days in their, you know, their childhood. And recognising and remembering, I think, that childhood is actually quite a short time. You know, we're a long time adults. Their days go a bit slower than ours do. And we need to capitalise on that. We need to make the most of their childhood and value childhood and see it as, you know, a really key and important time, really, you know, and not see them as adults of the future, but children children now, really. I think in terms of how we see that for the kind of city and for children living in the city is to really capitalise on the good stuff. So actually, it's a good place to grow up. It, it, there's lots that's accessible. There's lots that's free. There's lots of things that lots of families don't know about. They don't know where they are. They don't know what they can, um, where they can go with their children, where they can play with their children. So I think we need to be better at communicating that to them. We need to build on what has gone over the last few months. You know, we've got a huge amount of really good, well-meaning, um, community-spirited activity going on. And we need to keep that going. 
you know, not just let it fall when things start to get back to some norm- normality, because a lot of that has focused around supporting families and children. And if you think back to some of what we've seen over the last um, few months, children being involved in trying to cheer other people up, you know, we've seen window displays, we've seen children going out and taking gifts to older people, recognising that they're part of a wider community. I'd like to see how we harness that and that that continues. Thank you. So, Nigel, just finally from you, Paula talks a lot about community and coming together and, and helping ourselves. And the message I was hearing from you was very much around government, which is a, very important. What, from your perspective, can Cambridge be doing for itself and Cambridge's people be doing to make things better and to get nearer to your vision for ourselves, do you think? Well, I think there's already a lot of work going on. I mean, I, I see Cambridge as a very resourceful, driven place. People are aware of the problems and are doing their utmost to tackle it. One good thing that came during the lockdown was the government asked local authorities to make sure that all homeless people were housed. It hadn't been possible for various reasons for a government to say that and help local authorities to do that until the pandemic happened. So that's been very successful and a whole range of um, voluntary organisations and support came together to make that possible. So I don't think Cambridge lacks the will, the um, capacity to innovate. That's one of the good things about Cambridge in the place that is. Although we do have the significant inequality and lack of mobility problems we've been talking about, it does also have the people with the drive, commitment, and some of them have the money to help make things happen. So so I'm I'm optimistic from that point of view. I don't think there's a big deficit in terms of what people will try to do here within the environment and the policy regime that we have. Thank you so much, Nigel and Paula, both for your time and for your very interesting conversation. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. I will now leave you with a few final thoughts from the Lord Lieutenant of Cambridgeshire, Julie Spence. Well, thank you, Alison. I think it's probably quite stark for most people to understand that we're not only the most polarised city in the country in terms of rich and poor, but we're also a social mobility cold spot, which for me, at the end of all these episodes, puts into stark reality why we need the 2030 project to ensure that we start to loosen up and unfreeze that cold spot and allow people to truly become mobile. We need to make sure that we have affordable housing. We need to make sure that they have the safety net of employment and food on the table, which is probably the number one critical factor. And they need to have education, an education that will serve them for the future. There is an amazing quote which says, don't give young people your learning because they're born into a different era. And that is absolutely true. I mentioned before that we need to give young people the skills of flexibility and adaptability and not to think that the first choice they make for a career is their lasting one that they're going to do until they're 65 because actually the jobs market might change and they need to flexibly think and rethink. Importantly for Cambridge, We need to ensure that, you know, we have social care that actually can look after our ageing population. We need to make sure that we are listening to people. The older generation, what do they need? The younger generation, what do they need? So 
For 2030, as we move forward with all the agencies, whether it's public sector, private sector, the charitable and the voluntary sector, we have to work together to continually move the agenda forward. If you look at COVID, it's given us some stark realities in terms of poverty within Cambridge has become much more real. If you look at social media feeds, you can see where there have been deliveries of food, where there have been kitchens set up, where there has been support given to communities who actually wouldn't have survived without it. You can see the vulnerability of only being a few paychecks away from needing help and assistance. But it's also important that people ask for that help and assistance. We have in this city to start to clear the fog away, having open conversations around what is the art of the possible, what we can do, and not expect to suddenly achieve the 17 sustainability goals from the UN overnight, but to all make those incremental improvements, day in, day out, supporting people and doing the little things. It is the little things that will actually end up making the big difference. And by 2030, we will have made a dent in the divide between rich and poor within this wonderful city we all live in, so that everybody starts to have a stake. With all the issues that we've discussed over this series of six podcasts, we do need to think about. And if you have any ideas or you want to volunteer, then please support us in how we deal with hunger, food, nutrition, how we deal with housing, how we importantly deal with schooling of our young people, how we can resolve the digital poverty, how we can actually make sure that we have a vision to take us to 2030 and beyond, and how we can have an enormous impact, a positive impact in people's lives. And it is about doing this with the citizens of Cambridge. This actually requires people to act. So this Cambridge is a call for action. Can you really support us in making a difference and remove that tag that we have now had for several years about being the most polarised and divided city. We can all do this together, but we have to wake up and smell the coffee. Can I thank everyone who's contributed to this episode of Cambridge in Pursuit of Equality? We've had Nigel Howlett, who's CEO of the CEHS Group, Paula Bishop, Children and Young People Services Manager, Cambridge City Council, Leslie, who's a teacher and chair of trustees at the Red Hen Project. Ryan Kelsall, deputy CEO of the Eastern Learning Alliance. Sam Fox, principal at North Cambridge Academy. And also to the team at Conscious Communications for bringing it all together. If you'd like to be a contributor on a future series of Cambridge in pursuit of equality, please contact Alison Taylor at Conscious Communications on info at consciouscoms.com. We believe the messages around reducing social inequality in this episode are important, so please help us spread them far and wide by sharing this show with your network. Finally, if you want to be part of Cambridge 2030, and hopefully we have given you over this series of six episodes plenty to think about, plenty to realise where your talents lie and where you could make a significant difference, or you simply want to find out more, Head over to cambridge2030.org and register your interest. Thank you.